but they were really in the trenches. Like they were baking all night, throwing the bread in the truck, delivering with what money they had left. They would buy flour. Welcome to episode 74 of the Assyrian Podcast. It's Adessa, and I'm so glad to bring to you this week's episode as I sat down with Lilia Ishu Tukvorian of California Lavash, soon to be a Toria's family bakery. Born and raised in my hometown, San Jose, California, Lilia graduated with a Bachelor's of Arts in International Relations and Mass Communication Studies with a minor in Arabic from UCLA in Los Angeles. She then decided to go into her family's business and saw what potential it had. Sold in grocery stores throughout the U.S. and used by prestigious chefs, Atoria's family bakery is a true immigrant success story. Lilia has a long family lineage of tinkers and inventors, and I think you'll be amazed when you hear of the inventions her grandfather created. We also talked about what led her family to make lavash for the masses, her life as a new mother, and her hopes for her daughter. By the way, you'll hear both our tones to be on the quieter side for this episode, and that's because we didn't want to wake up the baby. But if you ask me, it makes for a more intimate conversation. <laughs> Support for this week's episode of the Assyrian Podcast is brought to you by Tony Caligrakis and the Injury Lawyers of Illinois and New York. If you know anyone that has been in a serious accident, please reach out to Tony Caligrakis. Tony has been recognized as a top 40 lawyer and a rising star by Super Lawyers Publications and has obtained multiple multi-million dollar awards. Tony can be reached at injuryrights.com or 847 847- Now, without further ado, here is Lilia. Lilia, I want you to talk to us a little bit about your family and your family's history. Yeah, so I guess I'll start with my my great-grandparents on my father's side. So, like most Assyrians, we have we have a story that involves the the genocide, and my family's no exception. So, my great grandmother, for whom I'm named, so my namesake Lily Jacob, she and her family were fleeing from Urmi to Amadan, I believe, and they were on the road when they were set upon by Turkish militants, and she had six older sisters. So there were seven sisters total Mm -hmm. and so they beat up her parents she was young i think six or so at the time maybe uh, maybe six or seven at the time and so she was they left her behind but they took all six of her older sisters and no one knows what happened to them and so she um she grew up an only child and then went and lived in tehran and married ishobek my great-grandfather and they had four sons and a daughter and so one of their sons was frederick ishu my grandfather and so that narrow escape and the tragedy is very much a part of our you know the family is very aware i would say of, of of that having happened growing up at what point in your life and who was it that told you about this part of your family's history Surprisingly, my grandpa never really spoke of it. My father is the one who relayed the story to me. It's interesting. They say our first fears are are then our last. And um, my grandpa passed away in April of 2016. And 
visiting him in the hospital just a couple weeks before his passing, he, I just, this memory just came back to me. He saw us and, you know, he was in a kind of new surrounding and he like gestured for me to come close. Like, you know, I leaned in to talk to him and uh, he had a question. He's like, like, are the the Turks outside? (laughs) Like, are they outside the door? Um, I was just so taken aback that, you know, as his memory wow. was kind of, his memory was, you know, um, coming and going and he lived a long life. So this, this, this kind of residual deep seated fear would, would kind of <laughs> rise up. And, you know, we were in a hospital in Gilroy, California, where there were no threats and <laughs> it was perfectly safe and we reassured him, but I guess it's always been on the periphery. I want to know a little bit about your grandpa and your grandparents, because I know that your grandfather was an inventor. Yeah, so my, I guess I come from a a line of tinkerers, if you will, or inventors. So I'll just go back to my great-grandfather, Ishobek. He had a trucking business, and he worked on a lot of these old cars that were left behind by, I don't know, British, Russians, whoever uh, kind of, you know, left this clutter strewn behind at, uh, at the end of the Great War. He tinkered and, you know, his son, my grandpa, Frederick, because there were there were five kids, I guess this was normal at the time, they would send one kid to live with an aunt. That, that was uh, what happened to him. So he went to live with his aunt, who was married to a German diplomat. Frederick oh, wow. Neuer. So that's why, despite being a Syrian, we have the name Frederick. It <laughs> means great ruler in German. So nice. it's, you know, and, and his brothers were like, Fredo and Kurus. But, um, but he was Frederick. And a little side note, actually. So his younger brother, Dariush Darius. So apparently, because he was named at the eve of World War II, where there was, you know, anti-Semitism. And there were just, you know, a lot of forces going on at the time. So they actually were shying away from... Shem, you know, Shemuel, or like or older Assyrian biblical names, and so that's why it was like this Persian, or might I say, Aryan name. And his younger sister, I think they wanted to name her something else, but it ended up being Sophia. So there, there's just interesting forces that affect the names. But in his case, he was named after Frederick Neuer, and he actually was raised by him too. So he had a very European way about him. Not only his manner of dress, he had a huge advantage learning English because he learned German first, and the languages are much you know much more closely related than let's say Assyrian or Persian what city um, did he grow up in uh, so he was from Spurgan uh, originally his family but he grew up in Tehran and so Lily whose you know story I relayed earlier she uh, she was married to Ishobek and she was kind of sent off to Tehran to be married and and live her life there and so her eldest son was my grandfather Fred- Frederick and so he was raised by this German man, his namesake, Frederick Neuer, and he learned how to kind of work on a lot of things and tinker. And I think at the age of 14 or 15, he already knew how to fix radios, which at the time, just a radio was seemed magical. Like, how is this box put in my house? And this voice appears right. from thousands <laughs> of miles away. That already was, you know, maybe not thousands of miles, but that already was, was amazing at the time. So the fact that this kid could show up and fix it when it broke was amazing people. Again, me, myself over here, cannot fix a car. I go to Toyota, get my service. I cannot fix a radio. But he really wanted to 
uh, was very curious and really wanted to know how things worked. And so he took that affinity for tinkering and fixing. And when the first airport opened in Tehran, he was involved in helping get first flights off the ground. And he actually received a grant from the government to go and study in, I think he went to Sweden. At some point he was in, in the States. So he was sent to study the technology that helps airplanes communicate with one another versus wow. see an airplane both go right. You know, <laughs> this was actually the the communication and the, the way that these airplanes, you know, set their routes and everything. And I mean, my he, he would know much more about this than I do. And but he he brought that technology to the country and he also set up the first air shuttle service. So like taking cargo from different parts of the country here and there. And so it really connected the country in, in new ways. I mean, he worked with some of the top generals in Iran at the time in, in doing so. I believe it was the Shah's brother-in-law that he collaborated with in those efforts. And so the panel technology, like the, the way in which the you know, communication took place, he was the foremost expert in the country at that. And so uh, the Shah was interested in knowing you know, what's going on at the airport, what's, you know, what's all happening over there. And so my grandfather personally taught him how to use the panels. Which is a huge deal. Yeah, it was. So. It's it's crazy to think that he was, you know, like that's your grandpa. Yeah, like hanging <laughs> with the royalty. Um, and then he was very attentive to details. So when the shot came, his wife would come as well. He didn't want her to be bored. Lord forbid, you know. <laughs> so he uh, he would have the latest magazine sent from Europe so that she could, you know, have those to look at and read during the during the sessions and. They, they were very impressed. They were taking like, wow, how, how did you get this? Or how did you know? Kind of, so they were, apparently that, that impressed them. And then even later on, he, uh, this is another random quirky thing. He grew peppers, we bought it. Like he would just grow different kinds of peppers. And so he would meticulously arrange these baskets and send them up to the palace. Uh-huh. And they used to like his, you know, the way he, I don't know, types of peppers and the way he arranged them. So he was always uh, up to something, let's say. <laughs> so it's it's a big deal that he was the first to bring communication technology to Iran after studying in Europe. I remember one thing that you had written about him as well was that he wasn't satisfied with Iran's water, I, waters, and they were they lacked waves, like surfing waves. And so he hired people to make some so that he could surf. Yeah. <laughs> so he was very... The, the voice that happens in most people's heads that's like, oh, that's not possible or other that's for other people to do. I, I think he just didn't possess that voice. So he would, he loved, you know, bobsled racing. He loved car racing, skiing. He loved, um, yeah, surfing. And, you know, it's who, it didn't matter that he's not in <laughs> not anywhere that's a kind of a surfer uh, destination, far from it. But um, yeah, he would, he designed, first of all, he designed his own surfboard because he wasn't satisfied with the angle and whatever else was existed at the time. So he tweaked to have, you know, his own surfboard. And then, yeah, he had people make waves of the right kind of what he'd seen and known surfing to have. And yeah, he was actually one of the first people to even start ballooning, you know, air balloons in in Iran. And um, I actually want to talk about that a little bit. Like he invented the world's first solar 
powered hot air balloon. Yeah, the first fully maneuverable solar powered hot air balloon. And so the National Geographic photo of the year, I think it's in 1978, it's him in the sun static. He was like the Elon Musk of his time. He didn't see something, so he created it. And like that is such a big deal, especially for that time. And to be able to see this sense of innovation that was coming out of Iran and at that an Assyrian that was doing that. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, he was, um, I mean, he invented that after having come to the States. Um, but in Iran, he was yeah, among the first to even bring mm. ballooning there. And yeah, he, he just didn't, he, he really lived in, a, in the realm of possibility. Something that I pulled out of a caption that you had written about him was growing up living in the same house my entire childhood I didn't know the extent of his greatness and I just want to say how common that is sometimes where we have these really rich stories of people's upbringings and we're around them all the time but they're often not mentioned and and you only find out about them later on or once the person passes. Um, For people that are in that type of circumstance or situation and they have elders, whether it's in their own household that are living with them or still living and and close by, what is something that, if you could go back, what what are the questions that you would ask? And how would you sort of start those conversations to pull out those stories? That's actually one of my top regrets is not um, having spoken with, you know, not having recorded. And I did at some point, you know, set up the camera, ask him a bunch of questions, but it's, it's not enough, you know, for such a long, rich life. And this actually reminds me, you know, with my grandmothers, I I really want to sit down and, and get the full story. I think of the average Saturday or Sunday afternoon, like, what am I really doing that's more important than, than capturing these? Um, and also, what a great way to honor their life and to give them, you know, meaning and purpose and an outlet to, by which to express their past and their hopes for the future. So I really, I really, really, I think I'm joined by many young Assyrians in saying that I really think that we all need to capture these stories. Once, once they're gone, then it's, it's, it's a shame that that these stories go with them. And also, I noticed with my grandpa when I did speak with him, it was a very kind of, I mean, he obviously knew I was coming. I was going to talk to him about this. So he had in, in his mind what he was going to say. But as you, you know, interviewing people know, sometimes certain questions beget other stories or things come to mind. And so it's something that very, I very much uh, want to get, just to have spent more time doing. I want to transition a little bit with that. You have, along with your family story, I want you to talk a little bit and tell us the story of how your family got into bread making. Yeah, so this is, I guess, goes back to my grandpa, or if you want to trace anything back enough, you know, great grandpa, etc. After his work with the airport in Tehran, he decided to go into paper converting. So he would take raw pulp and convert it into different paper products, Mm. um, whether it's, you know, tissue, toilet paper, he would even do, uh, like you take aluminum and sheet it into aluminum foil. And so he actually had one of the largest paper converting factories in the whole region, like definitely in Iran, but in the uh, maybe Middle East, I don't know, but it was, it was called Iran roll. And so he had these 
giant sheeters and what sheeters do is they take something that's kind of thick and big and they they slowly get it to be thinner so again this was my grandfather frederick issue so my father renee grew up visiting the factory floor and he would see these these giant machines that my grandpa had brought in from europe and this and that and he'd see them in action he saw what it was like to you know to manufacture and then so that was in tehran where he grew up for summer holidays he would go to his grandmother's house this is his on his mom's side and in Urmi and he they you know they had a plot of land like many Assyrians did where they you know had fruit trees and this and that and he would see the people come around in late summer that would bake lavash so they would you know each yard kind of had the tanur and these traveling bakers would mm. set up for you know for a day or so bake a bunch of uh, lavasha and then they would stack it up in the house's pantry and it would just stay there dried cracker dried form throughout winter it's too snowy cold rainy etc to go out and bake bread they would just pull the sheets and wet them and and so that was the bread baking and storing method at the time and so for my father to go from these giant factory you know machines to the handmade hand rolled lavash kind of put it together that hey there's a way to to make this bread still holding the original recipes but to make it on a grand scale for many more people to enjoy. And so uh, right here in San Jose, actually, in the house we grew up in, he started again tinkering in the garage. And so he he made the machine that's called the sheeter, but it flattens the bread. And so that has enabled us to make bread for the masses versus one at a time, you know, rolling out the sheets. and. Um, wow, okay. So your grandpa Frederick <clears throat> was in aviation technology then he decided to go into a paper making company. Your your father had seen all of the machines and how they worked, as well as his time in Urmi and seeing all of the and seeing the way that um, bread was being made, specifically lavash. And then fast forward, he's in San Jose in the garage and tinkering with a way to create a machine that would produce lavash to masses yes yeah, so so it would it would thin it out and, and make it just the right way so that it's still true to the original recipe and kind of true to the original procedure just made on a machine he used his grandmother so my great grandma's recipe um as the starting as the base and then he was a flight instructor at the time so he also went into aviation but he quit his job and started a bakery back in 92 and uh, hasn't looked back. <laughs> wow. And so when he was first thinking of this, how familiar were, were people with Lavash at that time in the area? So that's actually part of the reason that they started is because after having moved here, you know, like many, um, many Assyrians from Iran, it was the revolution that really was the reason that they moved here. And so uh, they came to the Bay Area and they had to drive an hour to, I want to say, Walnut Creek or somewhere. There was it was a long drive to even get fresh flatbreads. I don't even think it was the same kind of lavash. So so he saw the need in the market and. He kind of put in, you know, put together these pieces from his past, and yeah, he'd always, I guess, since he was young, he said he wanted to be a pilot, a baker, or a train conductor. So we always joke that he's gonna leave us and go. We were right next to train tracks, so he's just gonna hop on a train one day. <laughs> See you <Yeah>. later. 
<laughs> but um, yeah, he studied aviation and electrical engineering. And so his engineering background really helped, helped him. And how about your mom? So my mom was at the time at a bank. She was an assistant manager at a bank and she was raising us and she was back at work. And so she actually quit her job and dedicated her, you know, working life to help her husband, my dad, uh, realize this dream of his. So this was really a start of a family business. Yes. And there's a lot of long nights. One story that's just really uh, touching is... And I think about it because I travel around to, to sell the bread and so does my sister. And we get to pack our nice clothes and, you know, slacks and this and that and, you know, dress up for these presentations and take our laptops, etc. But they were really in the trenches like they were baking all night, throwing the bread in the truck, delivering with what money they had left. They would buy flour. I guess there was a flour depot in the kind of North San Jose. Now it's all tech businesses but they used to go I asked my dad I was like well how much flour would you buy at a time because we're used to receiving it tons and tons of it at a time now it just delivered to the bakery and then I said well how much would you go and pick up I just couldn't picture him grabbing all these bags of flour and he's like well depends how much bread we sold you know (laughs) dictated how much flour and so they were just so tired and working around the clock and we were raised at that time you know a lot by our grandparents so Frederick would drive us to school and you know I had (laughs) you know I had a lot of times where my brother sister and I would sleep on my dad's coat just inside a bread basket it was just late you know that was just very much a part of that was growing up (laughs) but we didn't think of it as abnormal or you know I'm supposed to be in my bed by 8 30 and you're supposed to read me bedtime stories every night like there wasn't there was no normal for us and we we were having fun running around the bakery and somebody and you came we'll give them a hairnet like we liked we liked just doing little things here and there but at some point my uh my mom told me that she had gone delivering bread and then back to the bakery to get orders and then baking the bread and bagging it at night barely getting a few hours of sleep, getting up and going back to deliver that bread. And she was wearing the same shirt and she didn't want anyone to, to see that. Uh, and, you know, the store owners would, <laughs> would see that she's wearing the same shirt. So she stopped, uh, she stopped at Kmart and, and got, you know, a new shirt just so they wouldn't see her in the same thing. And so wow. I, I really think of that when, when we get to pack our suitcase and go and get our PowerPoint ready, you know, just the, the sweat, blood and tears that they, that they really put into this to enable us to be where we are today it's just uh it's it's really touching when your parents decided that they wanted to start this in 92 at that time was it called a california lavash uh no so the first bakery name was wheat valley bakery and where did the name come from i think they you know they thought of it i know my aunts helped with the original branding and we always joke because in a thick accent it's it's either wheat valley or wheat valley like it's just, you can't have a v and a w no, just, you but we did <laughs> so um so yeah wheat valley bakery and that bread still around it as kids we called it daddy bread but that was the original bread and it's still in the markets today you can find it at the local mom and pops and that's how they started so my mom just had friends at this you know noru's bazaar and international food mart just the places that they would shop so she had eastern markets yeah all the the middle eastern markets up in sacramento there's a bunch of russian markets but they also know lavash so they started in all these little stores taking the bread themselves and the california lavash was born because they would get calls from these store owners 
like shortly after having made a delivery, they'd get a call and like, oh, my, my shelf's empty, come back. It's like, I just brought you, you know, enough bread that should last you a week, what's going on? So they found out that the culprits were these corporate chefs that were buying out the entire shelf. So whether it was, you know, I think Mark Walker, head chef at this Hyatt Regency, or, you know, all these high-end chefs in San Francisco found that there was fresh lavash in the Bay Area and, you know, they saw themselves as purveyors kind of, and so they went and would get it and use it for their for their sandwiches. Uh, furthermore, we started with the rectangular shape versus the traditional oval. So it lends mm. itself very well to pinwheels, or they call them the autumn sandwiches. It's just another name for these uh, pinwheel wraps. And so the shelves would be bought out. And so then they realized, okay, we need to launch a food service brand. So we need to put it in a box and have it ready for restaurants and caterers versus the retail bag with the writing on, on it. So then we, I say we, but I was maybe 10 at the time. So, <laughs> so they, they uh, launched California Lavash. My aunt did the original artwork. And so that was a brand born for food service application for the mainstream market for these caterers and restaurants to, uh, to have something to make their, their wraps and pinwheels with. And so it's a little thicker, actually. The uh, Wheat Valley Lavash, you can hold it up to the light and kind of see through it, which is the test. This is still thin bread and, you know, very thin compared to American standards, but um, it's a little thicker, so it's heftier for those wraps. And so that's the bread that, that we're really pushing out there and that's now in thousands of supermarkets around the country. You know, they make their wraps with them. Wow. And as your parents started off with this and you all were kind of running around and playing around as kids growing up, you three as as the siblings eventually ended up having a part in the bakery as well yeah so my yeah basically we all we saw not only it wasn't just the oh they they worked so hard and they put us through school it was the this thing has so much potential (laughs) and Uh, it wasn't like you all finished high school and went into this like you all went to amazing universities yeah, so I uh, I went to UCLA, and at the time I wanted to study international law. So I double majored in mass communication and then international relations. I minored in Arabic. I wanted to study abroad, then the Arab Spring happened, and my parents were not so much into sending me to the Middle East. <laughs> and then, so I was like, oh, I'll take a gap year and, you know, help my parents study for the LSAT and see how that goes. And I just saw how many incoming leads there were, not like, oh, someone's sitting there cold calling, hey, buy our bread, like people contacting us wanting the product. It was tremendous. Um, the growth up until that point had been great, but my parents were just, you know, overworked and it's just already running a bakery is very long hours. And then you get the office side of it where you, you know, you have to go out and present and leave the home base. And so I basically did not go to law school <laughs> and uh, decided to stay. Um, and then my brother went to UC Irvine. And so he studied as well. I mean, we're, we're all like kind of liberal art major types. We're all very kind of bookwormy types. So he, he studied history and Latin. And so right out of school, he he, he went and helped them out um, and really set up the quality assurance program, so the QA program, as we started working with bigger and bigger customers. Um, and did he know he wanted to do that? Like, were, was the plan definitely, like, after he was done with school, he was going to go back into it? Or was did it just kind of fall into place and what made sense at that time? You know, I actually don't know, which is <laughs> crazy. Yeah. So I know he talked about, like, you know, studying more, maybe being a teacher, professor, but... 
it, well, the bakery was growing, right? Yeah, and someone needed to be a part of it to help make that growth happen. And yeah, and it, it yeah, I guess with that. the with the quality side, it got to a point where just you know telling people, hey, we, yeah, we clean our stuff doesn't quite cut it, you know. Yeah. And you know, of course, the surprise state and whatever inspections we were passing those, but we needed higher standards and audits that we had to conduct ourselves in order to work with some of these some of these other customers. And so, yeah, he did that. And then my sister studied at uh, UC Berkeley, and she also studied communication and French. And then she uh, worked at a tech company for a little bit. And then we, uh, we won her over. <laughs> now she was, she was, uh, uh, she's been a great asset because she had a background, you know, doing sales. And yeah, so she's, she's able come, to bring that over. Yeah. And it's, it's been very, very wonderful because for a while it was kind of just me schlepping the bread. And so together we're even stronger. If one of us can't make it to a presentation, the other one steps in, there's no like, Oh, it's my commission or that's my account or your account. You know, it's all in the family. And so it's, it's really great. And we are very much stronger together, like in a figurative, like, Oh yeah, as a family together. But also when we go in, like when a buyer who just deals with random, you know, corporate people coming in all day, you know, this guy worked for the, the, the competitor last week. So, you know, when a, when a grocery store buyer sees all the turnover and just the lack of loyalty and all the consolidation with the companies, um, it means a lot to them. I've learned that generally it means a lot to have a true family business where the people that are calling on you are blood related and, and really you know it's their culture and their heritage and, and then so when we go in together it just makes me really happy and we uh we yeah we make a good uh, a good team yeah. i'd say so it's been now over what 20 over 25 years that this has been going strong mm-hmm. and i think for many people that are going to a grocery store and see the the bread i mean they don't they may not know, you know, the history behind it, the blood, sweat, and tears that yeah. behind it. So this is, it's no joke to be able to start something, but also to be able to um, maintain it and ensure its quality throughout all of these years, as well as consistently growing larger and larger. So what is it that people don't see on a day-to-day basis? Kind of behind the scenes. Yeah, that's the behind the scenes. <laughs> um I guess it's interesting because with bread, it's, you know, give us this day our daily bread. There's such a day in and day outness to it. It's uh, such it's a, a staple. staple. Yeah. yeah. And um, and so I guess it's, it's just the tirelessness and it's a tenacity that I think our dad usually kind of is very inspirational when it comes to it. It's that, okay, we did this all yesterday, but we're doing it again today, but we have to be that much better and we have to work that much harder. And, you know, in sales, it just takes endless optimism. So (laughs) what do they say? Every time you hear a no means you're closer to a yes, just Mm. not letting the little things get you down. But I guess, yeah, the, the behind the scenes is that if you are tenacious enough, and I've learned this from our dad, if you have that grit to, to really see it through, then the no isn't an option. So you can't even entertain, you can't even entertain the notion of what if this doesn't work or what if, you know, people don't like it or what if I fly across the country and the buyer laughs in my face. Like you can't, you can't even, there's no room for that. You just have to, you just have to keep, <laughs> keep, keep on keeping on. And I love it. What are some of the maybe more common retail stores that people might f- be familiar with, at least in the States that carry California Lavash? Yeah. So on the retail side, you can find us in a lot of West coast stores. So like Safeway stores around Northern California, Whole Foods in the five Western regions, 
So Sprouts as well, Smart and Final, I don't know, Nugget, a lot of, you know, New Leaf, New Seasons, a lot of the specialty high-end stores and co-ops also carry us. And gosh, it's it's something where we're always trying to keep, you know, to keep pushing and every day's a battle and brand building is very difficult. So we found What's that, that like? Oh gosh, it's, <laughs> it's like... Um, you're fighting on thousands of fronts. You know, we have all these stores that carry, that, that we're authorized in, but getting the product on the shelf, date coded correctly, with the promotion set up as it should, with the, you know, the demos to support it and the ads and the, just everything aligning is, it, it's, it's really a science and an art and and food service which is like the behind the scenes stuff i mentioned earlier with it's working with caterers or sandwich builders that tends to be a little less labor intensive but then you don't get that brand name out there you don't you know you could, they could swap you out overnight and a lot of people wouldn't tell the difference because your name's not on that pinwheel tray that they right. bought in their deli right. but with the with the brand it's 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 a it's a lot of putting yourself out there it's just it's 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 not easy to do and we're you know that that's been a point of focus but it's also always an uh, uphill battle and so we're we're really working on getting the name out there and even california lavash we wonder is that is that the best name to go forward with so Mm -hmm. we might be we might be looking at that in this coming year for people that might not be familiar with lavash could you describe what it is what its texture is like and what it's more commonly used for yeah so we we always get people that will say hey isn't this just tortilla isn't this just another tortilla and so we always say that it's a thin fully baked flatbread so that part's very important and it has a very light layer of flour and then soft bubbles on top so it has a very very great user experience you know you eat it it doesn't get stuck like raw dough to the roof of your mouth like sometimes happens with with tortilla it's it's a fully developed fully baked bread it just happens to be thin it's not that we just take raw dough and you know sheet it for those that are outside of like middle eastern cultures or you're talking about russians are also familiar with lavash what have been people's thoughts of using it because it is so versatile yeah so very it's interesting because culturally you just mainly rip and dip or it's kind of the glove you use to take kebab off Mm, the skewer yeah um uh, but generally speaking people see it as a wrap bread or a pizza shell Mm. so those are the two main things and we recently learned that most people heading to our website um, are looking for pizza recipes big time and such interesting (laughs) wrap is you know it's ready to wrap but (laughs) pizza is another uh, we're also trying to popularize other uses for example making crackers or you can even dry it into cups to make pretty hors d'oeuvres and just all sorts of things you know replace a hot dog bun with it you can also get kind of 3d like we'll make little roses for displays and um, just many different application quesadilla panini style grilling just so so much that can be done with a very thin bread <laughs> yeah that you can use in so many different recipes and mm-hmm. and yeah across the board with regards to any culture any types of food yeah and it can take the place of you know thicker maybe unhealthier breads it can replace phyllo in certain things and replace you know heavy hamburger hot dog buns in certain applications or thicker pizza shells so it's nice to be able to not only put forward our ancestors bread but to offer people a healthier alternative and just a healthier way to not cut out you know you see a lot of these extreme diets it's like okay i'm not having any carbs at all 
I'm not having any this, any that. You see people... What's life without carbs? Exactly. You're telling me. Um, I know, but you see people that treat diets like a train you jump on and off of. You know, like, oh, I'm on a diet next week. I'm not on a diet. Right. I'm on a diet. Whereas a diet is simply what you put in your body every day. And so uh, having a thin, healthy, fully baked bread that doesn't have junk and chemicals in it, it's a great way to keep bread in your life, but do it in a balanced and healthy way. And something that you can feel good about, like your family, like you all are helping to create something that is good, that enriches and is a staple. What does it mean to you to be able to share a part of your culture to the world through food? It's actually, it, it's wonderful. It's also a challenge because so a big part of me wants to push it to the forefront. Like this is a Syrian bread. We are, you know, here from the cradle of civilization, some of the oldest bakeries discovered ever were, you know, the same place we civilized, you know, we set our roots down. But bread, like so many other things, becomes this proxy war, you know, it becomes so politicized and you have all these different countries claiming credit. Um, I have a Google alert set for Lavash, so you'll see Armenia claimed it as a cultural heritage, and then uh-huh. Turkey and Azerbaijan got mad, and they had UNESCO, like, or they tried to get it reversed, and it just becomes this battleground, which is so unfortunate that food, something, you know, something so basic that could unite people is instead, you know, acting as a wedge and becoming this... Uh, this divisive thing and at food shows people will come by and like quiz us you know where is lavash from what people originated lavash and you know you have to you have to kind of put up the white flag and as 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 much as i would like to as much as i believe like veshta lavash like the the etymology is as far as i can tell is assyrian and and it's it's a wrap it's a covering and and we, we can trace it back but try telling someone who's been told their whole life that the bread is theirs that you know it's just it's not it's not a battle that that i have any you know desire to to fight and we just keep it neutral we say it's it's you know from all over central asia you'll find it throughout the middle east and you know russia all you know all different cultures and peoples enjoy and celebrate this bread and it's hard because you know the nationalist side would be like claim it as your own otherwise what else do we have but also it's like well if we share this and if anyone cares enough to ask about the etymology or the past as far as our ancestors and their you know ancient villages in Ormian, you know the the bread baking my dad witness that goes back hundreds of years if anyone cares to find out those traditions and those are the type of open-minded people who might you know care to maybe have their opinions swayed or just to learn more if people are so set on this history then so be it at the same time i feel like you know Lavash, and we can take that as an example, also allows an opportunity to connect so many of those cultures that are within that particular region because that is an item that they share, you know, all throughout those those cultures. And so, you know, to say that I'm not the one that, you know, it's not, it's, I'm hearing from you that it's not so important to say, like, we are the originators and trying to, like, make that be known, but rather that this is... A staple item that so many of our cultures that is a part of so many of our cultures and that you're able to then share that with everyone else yeah and that that's that's the difficult part is when when we want to share or find a common thread and 
people instead are he over here with scissors, you know, trying to just cut things up. This is yours. This is mine. You started this. I started that. You're um, like, let's just cut up the lavash and eat it. Yeah, it's <laughs> exactly. Not can we just? Can we, it's like trying to say like, oh, we invented hummus. You know, like don't yeah. don't even get me started. You know, or you that's know, a war in of itself. Yeah, your Turkish coffee, Armenian coffee, of all these different um, foods that are politicized and used. You know, it's the whole divide and conquer mentality, and it's, it's unfortunate. Hmm. What's your favorite way to enjoy lavash? Oh, I just in the morning with eggs. I know it's so boring and so basic, but um, I just love to kind of pick up eggs with, with the bread and it's just so much more filling and I'm really weird. I'll have strawberry jam with my eggs and lavash. But uh, so far as more savory applications, we'll do some really, really fun uh, crunchy veggie wraps you know food shows or um i love uh, when we do some demonstrations in stores and this and that i'll see moms come up and say what the heck my kid does not like spinach how did you get my kid to eat spinach and it's like easy you put it in a fun colorful pinwheel with some red pepper hummus you know a little sweet you get some crunchy apples crunchy carrots you, you know you have the spinach and it's bright it's vibrant it's different it's fun so getting um getting new people to eat healthier to expand their horizons is, is always wonderful and so i'd have to say second to the breakfast application i like the um like we do an avocado edamame hummus wrap that's so good it's all vegan but high, i'm not even vegan but it's high in protein and yeah. there's a lot of uh, a lot of healthy ways that, uh, that can be rolled yeah. i know growing up that many of my lunches consisted of my mother putting either mortadella and like gilale and rolling it up in lavasha or peanut butter and jelly and rolling it up in lavasha and i think that was (laughs) i think that was always such a fun thing to try to explain to my friends when they're like what is that i'm like lavash hello don't you know it's like in my big fat freak wedding and they're like moose caca like what's that right but that was such like lavash was such an important part of food growing up and it was like how could you hate lavasha like even if you're a picky eater like bread is bread not that it's thin and goes with anything and so yeah, that was that was definitely very much a, a part of my childhood growing up. Nice. We had a uh, we had a mom from I think Beverly Hills. She emailed us freaking out because her local store was had was out of stock, and she said your traditional lavash is the only thing my son eats for breakfast, wow. and he hasn't had breakfast in a couple of days. <laughs> in protest. <laughs> So, uh, was, you know, some calls had to be made to store, you know, got their, got their, you know, replenish the shelf. But it was, it was crazy to, to, to be able to have the bread that this kid will only eat this bread for breakfast. Oh, I love it. Uh, you were talking about food shows earlier. And I remember one time when this was when I was moving to Chicago and you were having a food show and you had asked if I could come out and help out and i'd be like yes of course i'm happy to and i got the coolest shirt so this <laughs> shirt said rap artist but like w-r-a-p artist and i thought that was just the best thing ever i love the and the creativity and in the marketing and that was such a fun time the food show and I think that will sort of transition into another part of your life. If you could talk to us a little bit about how you met your husband, Mark. Oh, so at a food show. <laughs> so there's a 
International Dairy Deli Bakery Expo. I know it sounds very exciting place to I'd be. I want to go there and <laughs> sample everything. It is actually a great place to never be hungry. But um, so it was a show uh, in New Orleans, and they. Uh, so my husband works for his family's business, Higgs Delicacies, and they were just happened to be two booths away from us. And and what do they produce? Uh, so they make uh, different Mediterranean mezes. So hummus. They'll make baba ganoush tzatziki then they do a line of salads like a tabbouleh and cracked weed and then they also uh, make dolma and baklava so just mediterranean high-end specialties and i had actually met his mother at another show a couple months before that that one in new orleans and so she um she and i realized we were kind of booth neighbors and so she grabbed her son by the hand and said come there's somebody I want you to meet <laughs> and so we actually exchanged business cards the first time yes. we met it was very Pretty official personal. I have those actually I have those business cards uh, <laughs> to this day up in, uh, in a frame in our room so nice. yeah we, we met at this show and just families you know after the show's done it's like oh let's grab dinner together and and the rest is history <laughs> you know something that listeners might not know is um, going to Mark and Lilia's wedding later on, the hashtag was Hamas be lavash, right? Yes. Thank you <laughs> to my was, sister Inan for coming up with that one. <laughs> which was like a beautiful combination and bringing together of both the side of bread and, and lavash and paired with hummus and all these mezzas which go wonderfully together. Yeah, and it's funny because the hall, they were trying to tell us that we couldn't bring any outside food in. And we're like, no, this is actually very important to us that for at least the appetizer portion, we have, you know, the hummus lavage and, and such. So they, they finally uh, they finally caved and let us bring our stuff. I think that it's such a beautiful thing, though, to have both of those be brought. It's Hegs Delis. Traditionally, it's Haig. Haig is how you pronounce the name. Oh, it's an Armenian name, but as far as America, you know, Americans are concerned, it's Hegs. Hegs, Haigs, uh, delicacies. Mm-hmm. Um, and California Lavash. And that was a family business, is a family business as well, right? Mm-hmm. So since 56, they had a retail store in San Francisco where they sold all sorts of international foods. And now they focus mm-hmm. just on the wholesale uh, like us, just selling to stores and restaurants and things. So that's so cool that both of <laughs> yeah. you come from these backgrounds that are kind of very similar. Yeah, it's scary and how similar our you know history. You know, sleeping in the stores and you know helping our parents, uh, you know, grow the family food businesses. <laughs> yeah, and um, he is Armenian. So I mean, I'm sure you've seen so many similarities with regards to both cultures and and growing up. Um, yeah, it's interesting because people will try to, they'll see us and they, you know, they're like, okay, you guys look, I don't know, the same kind of brown, I guess. I don't know what, you know, when the average American sees us and they want to kind of pin us to a country and it's just, it's not possible. It's like, okay, I'm a Syrian. It's not a country, but my parents immigrated from Iran, but the ancestral homelands are kind of Iraq, Iran. And then he's Armenian from Istanbul, you know, no, he's not Turkish, but, you know, just trying to, it's not it's just such a both cultures of such a wide diaspora because of everything that's happened in the past that we're just kind of (laughs) our our own thing I guess yeah would you say that in in dating and then eventually um coming together and and getting married have you seen similarities between the both of 
the cultures. Yeah, it's interesting for a lot of these traditions that we have, like, you know, uh, whether it's the Tala Boita or, you know, Calo Plata, like all these different, like when we were getting married, it was, it didn't need explaining, mm. you know, like they knew, okay, show up with chocolates on trays and, you know, <laughs> for sure. Like, like they, they it, it, it was great to come from such a similar place. Um, and our favorite pastime is arguing over who invented Lavash first? <laughs> I said I didn't care, but when it comes to when it comes to setting the record straight with my husband, I definitely care. Nice. I'm gonna brainwash our daughter from a young age. Like first words: yeah. Lavash is Assyrian. <laughs> well, but the cool thing about Assyrians and Armenians too is, like, especially in Iran, so many of the places that Assyrians grew up in were very much these uh, villages that. Assyrians and Armenians both lived in so Armenians knew Assyrian Assyrians knew how to speak Armenian and there were such similarities growing up and so I know I know when you eventually told me about Mark and stuff I was just like oh yeah like that's I mean he's more or less like Assyrian yeah and family members (laughs) will turn and speak to him in Assyrian (laughs) I think one of my uncles the entirety of this family barbecue was speaking to him in Assyrian it's like why didn't you tell him to stop he's like if the guy wants to speak to me in Assyrian who am I to tell him to stop so he was a he was a shoe in from uh from the start and now both of you are um new parents yeah, so we have a uh, four-and-a-half-month-old, um, Zarui Rosette is her name, Zarui Rosette Takborian, and she... Uh, Talk to me a little bit about the name and what you um, were thinking when you were, you know, coming up with names and then what ultimately led you to to picking that. So this might take a little bit, but basically I'd heard the name Zaruhi at, I think it was some artist name at a function we went to, and it just stuck with me. I really liked it. I looked into it further, and um, it originates from the Persian word for gold, Zar. Mm. And um, I thought that was interesting, you know, having parents that immigrated from Iran. I also have always liked the name Zara, like Zara. And so now that's her designated nickname. And it's also nice because it means ray in Assyrian. So like my family now calls her Zadid Bada, like mm, ray of light. Yeah. <laughs> and then my mom's Persian friend was quick to point out that if you separate Zar and Ruhi, it's like gold spirit. And so in Persian, that is. So yeah. Wow. <laughs> so there's all these cool little light, in, you know, kind of uh, light theme, you know, gold and light themed things. And um, with Rosette. And beautiful meanings. Middle, yeah. I, I think I just, I really, I just like her name. Um, a lot in my her middle name Rosette that's my mother's name and if you look at I mean you know this because the Rosette was uh, very much a part of your wedding symbol but the Rosette symbol will appear on a lot of the ancient Assyrian reliefs and it's usually put on the wrist it's like a protective amulet type type thing and so actually going back to the bread if you look at our bread package the, the design on the sides has rosettes and you know the a lot of the old uh, Assyrian symbols, but so the name Rosette is also nice because yeah, Zaruhi is technically an Armenian name. It's mm. it's an old name. A lot of his family were like, "Where did you dig that up from? Like, how did you find it?" Then the Rosette kind of evokes Assyrian, and um, and also something that I like a lot is that it contains uh, her first name contains every vowel. <laughs> so Z A R O U H I E. Wow! If there was a spot to possibly put a vowel, we we did it. Um, <laughs> So, so I, I, I really like it. What have been the blessings? What have been the challenges of motherhood? 
number one challenge is it's so hard to function without sleep. <laughs> and I'm sure all mothers can relate. Um, it's easy to, everyone says nap when they nap, but really laundry can wait or someone else can do it. So I think that the biggest challenge has been um, functioning with very little sleep and also separating the things that are mentally and physically exhausting and done while sleep deprived from exercise <laughs> like like the, the the chores from the from the fun it all becomes kind of a blur and um and it's it's true that you kind of don't know what what it's going to be like until you're there and there are you know there are days where it, it feels like all a blur and there are other days that just stand out with such clarity like i'll remember her kind of squint and smile on that one day and like little snippets of personality will just glimmer and they'll make it all worthwhile. Like the projectile poop, the throw up, the, the spit up on the family heirloom rug. Like it's all, it's all so worth it. Um, that, that in itself is, is remarkable. <laughs> Say years from now, when Zara listens to this, what do you want her to know about her mama? Uh, it's all for you, baby girl. <laughs> um, I guess just that, yeah, this this heritage, this um, there's there's a lot of legacy, um, but I don't want her to feel that as a weight, as a as a burden, as a guilt. You know, I don't. It's it's easy to kind of develop this martyr syndrome, and I feel as if a lot of first generation Assyrians, but people from all backgrounds, first generation born in America, you feel as if you have to reverse justify your parents sacrifice you have to work so darn hard because look at all that they left behind and look at how well they've supported you and your grandparents like they've had this double burden you know they haven't had the you know like some people have the family trust fund and then grandparents like some of my friends their grandparents paid for their school like our grandparents' funds were locked in a country that then had a revolution you know like it, it's um it's it can be seen as a huge a burden on the first generation and I don't want her to feel that kind of that need you no know, kind of kill yourself for this cause but I want her to I want it to bolster her I want her to derive strength and inspiration from it my grandpa he told me once this is Frederick he said uh was asking how work's going and what about this he would always ask you know really good questions having run a manufacturing business himself and he you know, I think there was some setback at the time and, you know, this distributor said that and, you know, we have this product here and we need a blah, blah, blah. You know, I was going through details and he said, drop by drop, you will fill the bucket. Like, you will do it. And he said, I know because you're my granddaughter. But I you know, that. So it's like, you are, you're my granddaughter. And, and at that moment, I realized that I don't, I don't have to see this as, oh, my parents started this. I'm going to stress out and run around. Oh, I have to do, I have to make it all worthwhile. I can see it as, hey, there is, there is a heritage here and there's people who believe in me and there's that it's been done before. I don't have to go and find examples of people who necessarily look like me or have my background who have done it. I don't have to, you know, it's, it's easy to have this imposter syndrome when going out there and that inspires fear. I think that looking to our culture and our heritage can enable us as Assyrians um, in, in all aspects of our life. Look at how resilient we've been. Just to to be part of a people's, you know, for whom every person has a genocide survival story, like that resiliency and that knowing where we come from to help direct us where we're going. I think that 
that's that's important to bear in mind and i think that that can have be a great life force and help us overcome some of this this pressure the guilt the first generation everything thanks for tuning in If you enjoyed this week's episode, help us out by sharing it out, whether that's on your social media or telling someone about it. We officially hit 50,000 downloads this week and we appreciate all of your support and continuing to spread the word about the podcast. Thank you all. That's it for this week. See you next week.